This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 33 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. This episode is the second of a three-part series on the shifts that we can make when supporting neurodiversity, especially when it comes to ADHD and autism, and some of the key shifts that we can make to help them more effectively in a way that is supportive because there are a number of problems with the current interventions that are commonly thought of as best practices. Many adults with ADHD and autism are coming forward saying that even though it seemed like some of the methods were helping them at the time, that a lot of them caused trauma, a lot of them experienced some negative impacts to their self-esteem that they carried into adulthood. And we definitely want to avoid doing that if we are supporting people with either of those diagnoses or others in neurodivergence. If you haven't already, I highly recommend that you go to episode 32, where I talk about the first shift that we can make which is going from compliance-based strategies to curiosity. And I started out by just sharing that a lot of the methods that are out there focus more on 
control and compliance when it comes to curbing certain behaviors that people perceive to be undesirable or inappropriate. And I talk about why we need to, instead of just immediately going to stopping these behaviors and replacing them with others that are thought to be more appropriate based on neurotypical behavior, that we want to instead come at it with a focus of curiosity and trying to understand why the behavior is there in the first place so that we can understand what need is being met so that we can make a good decision as far as is this a behavior that we really want to stop or is this a behavior that we might want to change but not necessarily in a way that we would if we were working with a neurotypical. So I originally came around to these conclusions because I realized that I myself am not neurotypical and I will be sharing more about that in the future. But the thing is, is that a lot of these approaches, when I would use them, I would feel uncomfortable because they just didn't feel right to me. A lot of times I didn't get great results because I was trying to fit my students into a box that just didn't fit them. So we'd be trying to encourage certain behaviors and stop others, but it just seemed like we got a lot of resistance Kids would get very agitated. And when we would get them to comply, it was only temporary. It wouldn't necessarily transfer from one situation to another. So as soon as the external reward would go away, the behavior that we wanted would go away as well. Or if we got kids to comply and behave in a certain way, it just felt kind of awkward and unnatural and kids weren't necessarily able to generalize it from one situation to another. And I'll give you some examples throughout this episode. But today, the main focus is going to be on that second shift. So initially, the first shift is about realizing that we're not here to try to get kids to just comply with our demands. We want to really understand if there are behaviors that we see as undesirable, disruptive, or as getting in the way of a child's success, we want to have an understanding of why they are happening in the first place. And then obviously, the second step is figuring out what to do about them. So as we get to that second step, we can make the second shift, which is that we want to think about adding behaviors or getting behavior that is functional and effective instead of just trying to make it, quote, more appropriate. So we shift from appropriate to functional and effective. And as I lay out some specific examples, you're going to see why getting functional behavior and effective behavior is not the same thing as appropriate behavior. Before we get going, of course, I always like to be sharing some tangible strategies that you can do to help your students or your children 
depending on whether you are a clinician, a teacher, or a parent. So again, I wanted to mention the time tracking journal because that is going to be key in helping to make these three shifts that I'm going to talk about in this series If you have a child who is working on executive functioning and self-regulation, as I'm going to talk about today, things that we think are appropriate or the way that we expect things to happen aren't necessarily always the way that things have to happen. A lot of times what works for one person and what helps one person be successful as far as their process or their way of doing things isn't exactly the same as another person, especially when we are comparing neurotypicals to neurodivergence. You will find that if one person is not necessarily able to intuitively understand how to self-regulate and plan, whenever you have tasks that have multiple steps, then the process of getting them to be successful with that behavior is going to look different than it would for somebody who just kind of has already figured it out on their own. And it doesn't necessarily mean that one person is more intelligent than the other. It just means that their brain works differently. So I outline a strategy for helping someone work through those multi-step tasks if they are not coming along intuitively in the time tracking journal. So if you want to get access to that tool, just go to Dr. Karen dudekbrandoncom backslash time journal, and you'll be able to check it out. It is particularly effective if you have kids who are, whether it be in the home setting or the school setting, have a hard time with things like homework and independent tasks that require multiple steps and planning. Again, that's drkarendudekbrandoncom backslash time journal. So let's now get into the second shift. We want to shift from appropriate to functional and effective. The reason that we want to do this is because many of the behaviors neurodivergence engage in are referred to as inappropriate to neurotypicals, meaning that they aren't things that we think are acceptable ways to behave. This is especially common if you have someone who is autistic, for example, and I am going to lay out a couple examples of rules that we commonly accept as far as what we think are expected and appropriate behaviors. And these are based on some of those unwritten social rules that aren't necessarily stated explicitly. So for example... Some of those unwritten rules that have commonly been accepted by neurotypicals would be things like you're supposed to look someone in the eye when you're talking to them. You're supposed to sit in your seat in class. You have to engage in back and forth dialogue every time you have a conversation with someone. Another one is that you can't talk about insert your topic of interest here. Instead, you're supposed to talk about what other people want to talk about. And this is common with autistic people. They tend to have interests that are highly engaging for them, where they often will want to talk about that thing or engage with that particular interest 
all the time or a large portion of their time. And a lot of times we will sometimes tell them, oh, you can't talk about that. You've got to talk about these other things that other people want to talk about. So that's one common thing I see as far as a rule that is being taught. The other things that come up, a couple other examples would be things like flapping your hands or rocking or stimming in any way or even vocalizing. We often see those things as weird and that we should stop doing it because people will think it's strange. So that's another rule that's being taught. Another example would be something like you aren't supposed to line up the toy cars by yourself over here in the corner. You're supposed to pretend to drive them with the other kids because this is the way that you're supposed to play with this toy because that's the way that it was intended. Now, I could keep going with more examples, but the point is that many of these behaviors are thought to be abnormal because they're not things neurotypicals would do. So, for example, if we expect neurotypicals to be able to just sit and pay attention in class, then that is what we see as the acceptable way to act. If we expect neurotypicals to not focus on one topic all the time, then we think, oh, that is an acceptable way to engage in conversation. If we expect kids to play with toy cars by pretending to drive them around the room and do it with other kids instead of by yourself in the corner lining them up, well, we see one behavior as acceptable and one as unacceptable. The other example is stimming. So those are things that people can often engage in. A lot of neurodivergents do them in order to self-regulate, but many people see those things as inappropriate or unacceptable behaviors. So again, a lot of these things are not seen as normal when we compare them to a neurotypical standard because they're not things that neurotypicals would do. However, even though these things might not be common behavior for neurotypicals, they're not abnormal for a neurodivergent because neurodivergents are wired completely different. So we're really comparing apples to oranges by saying these things are normal, these things are acceptable, and these other things over here aren't. And therefore, because these things are normal, everybody needs to behave in this way all the time. So. This is exactly why it's so important to make that first shift that I mentioned from compliance to curiosity, because a lot of times when we are just trying to make neurodivergence look like neurotypicals by making them act, quote, more appropriate, what we're doing is we are forcing them to behave in a way that feels very unnatural to them. And essentially, we're trying to get them to be someone that they're not. Imagine if you tried to completely alter your personality all the time, that would be pretty exhausting and, again, traumatizing, as many autistic people have often shared. So when we think about these things that are, quote, appropriate, a lot of times they're appropriate just because there are these arbitrary social rules that we've deemed as acceptable. And even think about it, if you go to another country in a different culture, there might be another set of rules that are perfectly acceptable, but are different from what we might be used to 
here. And when I say here, I'm referring to the U.S. because that's where I'm located. But if you are listening from another country, obviously there are a set of cultural rules and expectations as well. So the same thing would apply to you there. When we think about it that way, you realize that culture and society can change over time as far as what behaviors are considered to be appropriate, polite, and acceptable. So when you realize that there's that fluidity, then that brings the realization that a lot of these rules don't necessarily mean that that is the only way that someone can engage and that that is the only way to be that is functional and effective. And where this can be a problem when intervening and supporting people who have ADHD or autistic people is that we sometimes are focused more on what we think is acceptable when really there's no reason that it has to just be that one way. And so when we focus on compliance, it might be difficult for that person that we're supporting to see, well, why? Why does it have to just be that one way? Why is that the only acceptable way to do whatever it is that we're doing? So it might not seem logical to them, so you might get some pushback. And the other thing to think about is that while your way might be one way to do things, it might seem so unnatural to the other person that it causes more harm than good to try to force them to do it that way when there might be something else that might not look, in your definition, appropriate or might not be the way that you would choose to do it, but would be a perfectly acceptable way to do things. So let me give you some examples so that you can understand a little bit more what I'm talking about. Let's talk about academic work. So traditionally, kids have been expected to sit still in class or have their desks positioned a certain way while doing academic work. They may also be asked to sit for a certain amount of time for a certain length of time, and that might work fine for a lot of kids. But for some neurodivergence, sitting still and sensing time is extremely difficult. So asking them to sit still for a certain amount of time in a certain way might be so overwhelming to them that it causes a lot of anxiety and a meltdown, especially when they aren't sure how long they're going to have to be sitting there. They're not sure what's going to happen next, and they don't really have a way to understand how long am I going to be doing this thing that is very uncomfortable for me. And especially if they're required to be positioned in a way that just feels so unnatural to them that they're kind of just sitting there itching and feeling like they want to jump out of their skin. Some kids might be okay with not knowing exactly what's going to happen and not knowing what is coming up, or they might be okay with just kind of rolling with it. But that might cause a lot of anxiety for other people. So they might need some more reassurance, pacing, letting them know in advance when things are going to change and what's going to happen. There are all kinds of different things that can come up. And if we only 
do it in one way and we expect all kids to be fine with just one level of support, then we're going to have kids who aren't going to necessarily fit into that box. So there might be some other options as far as getting that task done that might look different, but aren't exactly what the majority of people are doing or what would be your first expectation that you might have as far as how you think it's going to play out. And you might have an expectation based on your other kids. For example, if you're a parent who has some older kids and maybe their younger sibling is acting in a certain way that is different, or whether you are in a classroom situation where the majority of kids are acting one way and there's another kid that's acting another way, and it seems inappropriate to you when, in reality, some of the things that they're doing might be perfectly acceptable. It might be okay that they're working for a few minutes and then needing to move a little bit. It might be okay that they are needing to sit in a certain way and move. It might be okay that they don't complete their assignments at the same pace with the same amount of support as the other students. Maybe they don't do the same volume as the other students, but they're still learning the skills. So we want to really shift our thinking from what is the way that this has to be versus is there another way that this could be that this could work? Another example I wanted to give. So that is more of an example that could commonly come up with kids who have ADHD, although I know that a lot of autistic kids might have that same scenario where they need their work to be paced and it's perfectly fine. They're learning the skills. It works for them, but it looks a little bit different. But I wanted to give another example that has to do with social behavior instead of work completion. So this is something that comes up a lot, and I talked about it a little bit in the previous episode, which is that... The way that neurotypicals engage in conversation is that it's it's typically back and forth dialogue. And many times when we are focusing on teaching social skills interventions to neurodivergence who might be having a hard time making friends or might be showing some of those behaviors that other people have identified as inappropriate is that we insist that they engage in this back and forth dialogue when they're having a conversation as well. And obviously, it is useful for neurodivergence to understand that this is the way that people might expect them to engage. And it also might be beneficial for them to choose this type of interaction and and to choose to engage in this way some of the time if they find that it's beneficial to doing something that is important to them. But it's important to realize that neurodivergence may enjoy engaging in other ways that are different from the ways that neurotypical people often engage. So one example would be monologuing about a certain topic of interest or even being in the same space with someone else without having a conversation at all. Both of those things are perfectly acceptable ways to be 
and they don't harm anyone if all the parties participating are enjoying themselves. So they're perfectly acceptable and effective ways to interact with other people. The easiest analogy that I found to explain this interaction style or these different ways of interacting with people and spending quality time together is that the explanation of introversion and extroversion is that an introvert might prefer to talk to someone in a one-on-one conversation or a small group setting or even choose to be alone some of the time. And an extrovert may prefer a larger group and likes to be around people for a large amount of time. Now, an introvert and an extrovert can be in some sort of relationship and have an understanding that they like to do things differently, and they might have the desire to make the other person happy. So as a result, they might choose to do things that are out of their comfort zone some of the time, but other times they might choose to set a boundary and to decide to do things in their own way, the way that they like to engage. So In this type of interaction or this relationship, each person can have an acceptance of the way that the other person likes to do things, and they can acknowledge that they are both doing things in a way that's fulfilling and effective, even though it might look different. And again, they might choose to do things the other person's way some of the time, but sometimes they might choose to do things the way that they like to do things. This basic understanding is key to helping kids advocate for themselves and set healthy boundaries because it's useful to teach neurodivergence how their behaviors might come across to neurotypicals, but it's not useful to force them to conform 100% of the time in the interest of being more appropriate. It really just does them a huge disservice. When we're constantly telling them, your way of doing things is wrong, and my way of doing things is right, it just reinforces the idea that they are somehow broken, but also forcing them to always act in a way that feels unnatural to them can be exhausting and can result in burnout because they're constantly pretending to be someone they're not. And insisting that they have to act a certain way limits their ability to self-advocate and set boundaries and form relationships with people who will accept them the way that they are. We would never tell a neurotypical something like, you're not allowed to talk about or pursue that thing that interests and excites you. You just need to do what everybody else is interested in. And when we're telling neurodivergence, that way that you like to engage isn't right and you can't do it anymore, you have to do it our way all of the time, then what we're really doing is just telling them that they don't deserve to do things in a way that is fulfilling to them. Again, we'd never tell a neurotypical something like that. We would tell them, you know what, you should find friends and form relationships with people who accept you and allow you to interact in ways that you enjoy and that are interested in things that you are also interested in. So if we would advocate for neurotypicals to set those boundaries, we should do the same thing for neurodivergence, even though it might look different from what we would expect based on neurotypical behavior. Instead of forcing them to be someone they're not in the interest of being more appropriate, why don't we instead 
help them shape their behaviors in a way that suits them instead of forcing them into some preconceived idea of how they're supposed to be. Going back to some of those examples that I gave at the beginning of the episode about things that we see as unwritten rules or behaviors that we think are appropriate or inappropriate, one of the things that comes up commonly are stimming behaviors. So this is something that neurodivergence commonly do that regulates them, and it is something that neurotypicals don't do as often or with as much intensity as neurodivergence. So in an autistic person, this could look like rocking or flapping their hands. It could be some kind of movement. It could be some kind of fidgeting. And again, these things are done as a means of self-regulation. And also it's something that can release dopamine and endorphins and can just, again, help us feel good and comfortable. And how this has played out in my personal experience is that, number one, I have seen in my clinical work that a lot of times these behaviors are, they're curbed, or we try to get people to stop doing these behaviors when really they're serving a purpose. So yes, we want to acknowledge when there is something that is preventing someone from doing something that is going to be an important and useful skill. So there is a way to shape them in a way and use these behaviors in a way that still allows the person to be successful. But again, we don't just want to say, hey, that's inappropriate. That looks weird. Stop doing it. Because again, we're not coming from a place of curiosity when we do that. And we're also not helping that person understand how to get their needs met. So I've seen that a lot, and there are a lot of good ways to do this. With the stimming example specifically, a lot of times what you can do is figure out a way to allow the person to stim in a way that doesn't take away from whatever it is that they're doing. Or if we do find that the stimming behavior takes away from the task that someone is doing, we find a way to incorporate sensory breaks. So yes, they do have to refrain from that behavior for just a certain amount of time to engage in a behavior that is productive for them, but then we still allow them to engage in that stimming behavior. We just might break it up a little bit differently. So we still figure out a way to help them get that need met, but we do it in a way that is not just saying, this is bad, stop doing it. Something that came up in my own personal experiences that I didn't realize it at the time, but I engaged in a lot of stimming behavior when I was younger. I actually still do. So for me, I did a lot of rocking. If I look back at home videos of myself when I'm a toddler, I've got some where I'm just, you know, my parents are sitting there talking to me. I'm, I'm on the camera and I'm just sitting there rocking back and forth. And then as I got older, what I would do is my stimming or my way that I would, it was kind of a, almost a way that I would unwind and calm myself, especially if I was in a situation where I had a lot of people around me. I find that to be overstimulating. So a lot of times I need to come back and find a way to bring myself back to a state of equilibrium if I have to do something like that. 
So what I would do when I was younger is that I would sit there in my parents' basement. They had those rocking horses with the springs and I would play music on my Fisher-Price record player and I would often listen to the same set of songs over and over again and I would rock on the horse. And that was when I was younger and that was from when I was in preschool all the way through, I would say, elementary school. And then I would also do use the swing set. So I would do swinging as well. And I really carried that behavior through high school. So I would find some way where I could get that need met, whether it would be sitting in a chair and doing it. And music was usually involved. And I never was shamed for doing this. I was never given any grief about it. It was just kind of like, oh, that's what Karen does. She's just listening to her music again. And I never really understood why I was doing these things. I just felt like I needed to. And how it's transitioned into adulthood is that now I will usually take my dog for a walk. Sometimes I'll listen to my earbuds. Sometimes I'll just go without my music. And I also enjoy doing things like endurance sports that require a lot of repetitive behaviors over and over again. And so the fact that I was not given some kind of pressure to stop allowed me to get those needs met, but at the same time allowed me to figure out creative ways that I could get that need met in a way that is also multifunctional. Walking is very good for you, you know, running and all of those things that I like to do are also exercise. So because I wasn't shamed and I wasn't just taught to repress that need, I figured out a way that I can use it in my life that works for me. And so it's really important for people to have that self-awareness when they're younger instead of just feeling shame about it because that's what's going to allow them to find a way that is functional and effective. Again, sitting on a rocking horse for hours and hours might seem unusual, but if it is something that is getting a need met, well, it isn't necessarily causing any harm. So a lot of times with these behaviors, whether it be social behaviors or whether it be a way of doing work, it's important to make the shift from, okay, what's appropriate and expected and what do I think is the way to do this and is what they're doing really that inappropriate? Just because it's what I don't think is the way that we should be doing it, just because I think it might not conform to certain social standards, does that necessarily mean that this behavior is causing any harm if it is serving a purpose? And if we go with that level of understanding, what that allows us to do is to figure out how to work with behaviors instead of work against them. And that's what can allow us to figure out, okay, which behaviors do we need to modify, tweak, which ones should we allow? Because if we think of it from a standpoint of not this is the way that you have to act because these are the rules versus what goals do you want to accomplish and how can I help you accomplish them, then it just really shifts our focus and we can really tease out, all right, which behaviors are we trying to get someone to do just because we think they're appropriate and because we're following a set of arbitrary rules that don't really 
have that much meaning behind them aside from just a lot of people think that they're the way that you're supposed to do things versus when are we focusing on curbing behaviors or shaping behaviors because it truly serves the person. So that is why we need to make that shift from appropriate to functional and effective. Making that shift can help you to determine when should we push this person out of their comfort zone and when should we allow them to engage in this behavior in a certain way because it's really not hurting anything. So that is that second shift. Again, that first shift was shifting from that strict control and compliance to curiosity. And then that second shift is going from appropriate behaviors to effective behaviors. That third shift is going to be going from gaslighting to validation. So I will get into that in the next episode. But for now, this is a good place to wrap up. Now, one of the most common areas where I've seen people use those authoritarian compliance-based approaches is with things like homework or chores or following directions and things like that. So usually those things are multi-step tasks that require a lot of self-regulation and planning. And so that is where I see a lot of people making the mistake of going to reward punishment types of systems instead of understanding the root cause of why the individual is not completing the task in the first place. And in many cases, the root cause of the procrastination, the defiance, or whatever it is that the person thinks is an undesirable behavior, a lot of times the root cause is because there is a key set of skills that are lacking when it comes to planning and self-regulation and also just mindset and beliefs about a certain task. When we think something is difficult, of course, we're going to have that tendency to avoid it. So I show you how to work through all of these things in a way that is healthy and affirming with the time tracking journal. So the time tracking journal is a strategy that you can do in just about 10 to 15 minutes a day if you are focusing on some type of task that requires multiple steps. This is something that can be used in the home environment, can also be something that you could use in an educational setting like a school to teach kids the executive functioning skills that they need in order to do multi-step tasks. When we're talking about these types of things, there are so many different things to consider. There are the mindset shifts that need to happen to get yourself over those hurdles. There is the ability to plan and understand what steps you need to take to complete the task. So I give you a strategy that you can use to do that with your kids in the time tracking journal. To check it out and get access, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. For now, we will wrap up episode 32. And also remember, it helps us so much to get this information into the hands of people 
who need it if you leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, if you share this episode with your friends or colleagues who might need this information. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 34. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlexLearning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com backslash BE.